The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. So there are lots of different verses that we're going to be talking about today. Um, the easiest thing for you to do to follow along is to use the YouVersion app um, and kind of be able to scroll through that. We create an event uh, before each Sunday morning. I had someone, I heard, uh, I heard like third hand, heard, heard through the grapevine last week that there's someone who, when they wake up on Sunday morning, the first thing they do is they look at the YouVersion app to see what we're going to be talking about um, on Sunday. And as much as I love the sound of pages turning on Sunday morning when I tell you to open your Bible to a certain text, I love hearing things like that, that the resources that we are sharing with our body are being used. It's a real encouragement to me. Um, there's this great scene in... In John chapter 4, where Jesus and his disciples are, are returning to Galilee, and rather than take the long way around, they go through Samaria. So if, if you've been in church for a little while, you kind of know that there's, there's tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it goes back to a time in the Old Testament um, and the, the long and the short version of the story is the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along. And that's pretty minor. Um, that's explaining it pretty minorly. In fact, they, um, they hated each other. The Samaritans hated the Jews. And usually when someone hates you, you respond, you respond in kind. Well, they, go, they come upon this well as they're walking through Samaria. And the disciples leave Jesus there. And they go into town to find some food. And there's this woman that comes out to the well and they start to have this conversation. Jesus asks her to, to get, get water for him. And, and they have this long discussion. And, um, and finally, Jesus says this. He says, go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus then responds, you're right. You don't have a husband. In fact, you have had five husbands. And in fact, the man that you are with right now is not your husband. You have certainly spoken the truth. This is one of those moments in scripture that like if, if we were witnessing this in real life, can we agree that we'd probably tell Jesus to chill out a little bit? Like Jesus, Jesus's evangelism method um, doesn't quite, doesn't quite mesh with the way that we talk about things um, in, our own, in our own time. I want you to imagine me saying something like that to you in the lobby as you're coming in um, in the morning. <clears throat> this is Jesus at his most honest. This is Jesus at his most confrontational. And in fact, it's Jesus at his most loving. See, Jesus is and was unafraid of dealing with the issues in people's lives. Jesus wasn't bound by, by our sensibilities and our sensitivities. Jesus confronts the realities in people's lives, and whether they're Pharisees or his disciples, the apostles, or this Samaritan woman, Jesus confronts reality. Jesus loves them enough to tell them the truth. And sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's really easy for Jesus to tell people the truth when we read through the text. And other times it appears like it's really hard. Um, but Jesus is about to share something with her in John chapter 4 that's really important. He's about to share his identity with her. He's about to tell her who he is. 
And this is not a random encounter. What I love about John chapter 4, um, it begins, it says, it says that he had to go through Samaria. Well, geographically, that's not really true. He didn't, he didn't have to go through Samaria. There was another way around, but he had to go. So we have to ask why. And the real reason is there was a woman who was going to be at a well, and Jesus had a truth to tell her. He had something to tell her. And I believe that there's not a single person here today who's here by accident. I think, I think there's an appointment that we have all been invited into. And whether you're here in person or watching online, like you, you're here for the appointment and God has something for us. And what Jesus is going to tell her is his identity as Messiah. And when Jesus is going to tell something like that to someone, he has to be really clear about what's going on. And, and in January, one of the things that we do here at Westway Christian Church is we talk about who we are. We want to be clear about who we are. We want to be straight. And because I've been around people for a long time, um, because I've been around ministry for a long time, last week we, get, we talked about be, the importance of the gathering we talked about the importance of being, being physically present in the same room with one another. We talked about the importance of, of being online. Um, and maybe, maybe you were offended by that. Maybe that was something that bothered you um, and upset you. But I would tell you is if, if you're someone who, who neglects the gathering, like I would argue maybe you should be upset. I would argue that maybe we should be convicted when the Holy Spirit talks to us. And if it's true that, as my son John told us a few weeks ago, and as Sue read a few minutes ago, that our love for one another is the identifier of whether or not we are believers, then in order for us to love one another, we have to be together. Right? We, have to be, we have to be in relationship with one another. We have to be around other believers. And this is, why, this is why the gathering matters so much for us. When the early church met, and we see this in Acts 2, verse 42, when they gathered, they were devoted to four things. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is meals, and they were devoted to prayer. And they met together to do these things, whether it was a, whether it was a small gathering, like a, like a house church gathering, which it most likely was, or whether they gathered in the temple and there was more than what could fit in a house. The point was, they gathered. They were called to gather. And when they failed to gather, they were warned. This, was, this is what we read last week in Hebrews 10, 25. The author of Hebrews said, let us not neglect our meeting together as some have done. As we reviewed this uh, last week in our elders meeting, uh, John Thomas said, um, he pointed out that the, the word neglect is the important word. If there was an operative word in the phrase, let us not neglect our meeting together as some have done, the, the important word is neglect. This isn't about people who are, who are sick or traveling, or who have sick, sick children. I had someone tell me as they came in this morning, last week I was here, and my granddaughter got sick, so we had to leave, so we watched at home, and then I felt bad because of what you were talking about. Right? Like, 
Can we agree that that's a legitimate reason to not gather? This is about, this is about neglecting the gathering. This is about making a choice I can go. I feel like God is compelling me to go. I feel like God wants me to go, but I'm just not feeling it. See, it's easy for us to neglect. And and as we talked about at the end, the the reality is is what it is. Over Over half of our church body is here twice or less a month. And if and if that's you, if you're in that space. Like I asked last week, like I, I, don't, I don't know what discipleship looks like in your life if that is your reality. I love Dave's communion meditation last week. He said we can, there's lots of things we can do on our own. There's lots of things in our discipleship we can do on our own. And there are lots of things in our discipleship that we cannot do on our own. That it is impossible for us to do unless we are gathered together as a body because the gathering is how God shapes and molds us into people who love others. We won't learn to love others if we're not loving others. And it's in this space where we get to, where we get to practice that. And John Thomas was just full of, money, full of money quotes last week. He said, the church is the body of Christ on earth. And to separate yourself from the church is to separate yourself from Christ. This is, this is what we're called into, the gathering. And if we're separated from Christ, then we don't have an example. Um, Ephesians 5 verse 2 says this, Live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. I love that Paul wrote, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. What Paul didn't say was live a life of love for yourself. So we have a word for that. Selfish. If someone is living a life that's full of themselves, they're selfish. A life that's filled with love will always be demonstrated to other people. They'll always be demonstrated with other people. And Jesus demonstrated this to us. So when we look at Jesus's example, we look at Jesus's life, we we have to ask this question, and it's kind of worded a little strangely. You might think Yoda uh, phrased the question. Um, How should we then live? When I was in in Bible college the first time, um, as I've shared before, uh, me and Bible college didn't get along after high school. But there was one class that I absolutely loved. <clears throat> and it was, it was a winterum class. It was a two-week-long class, which is probably why I loved it, because it was so short. But it was called Western Thought and Culture. And what we did was, was we watched this video series called How Should We Then Live by this Christian philosopher named Francis Schaeffer. And if you've been around Westway over the last six years, like Francis Schaeffer comes up every once in a while. I'm feeling a little bit of a resurgence in my soul right now. So he, he might be making more of an appearance. But Francis Schaeffer made this video series in the 70s and the 80s, and he called it, How Should We Then Live? Like, what does it look like for people who have been transformed by Jesus Christ to live? 
You can find this video series. It's on Amazon Prime, and I also think it's on YouTube. I highly recommend it. Francis Schaeffer has this cute little bob haircut, wears knickers that are up to about here, and it is amazing. But the question that we have to ask is, how should we then live? What is my response to the fact that that Jesus has done everything, that Jesus has been generous, that Jesus has humbly served. Well, we are to imitate, this is what Ephesians 5 says, we are to imitate God in all that we do. We can't imitate his actions perfectly because we're sinners. Can we agree on that? We see his example, we're not going to do it perfectly, but we can imitate his character and his heart. And we do this when we love one another. We imitate his character and his heart when we gather together, when we serve and when we give. So I've been thinking about this message. Like last week's message I shared was like six months in the works. This, month, this, this one's probably five months in the works. In uh, Numbers chapter three, chapters 3 and 4 in the Old Testament, there's this, this division of labor amongst the Levites. The Levites were the tribe. Uh, they were the Levitical tribe. Their job was to, was to serve in the tabernacle. They were the, they were the priestly line. And there were, there were different clans, there were different families in the priestly line. And each one of them had kind of different tasks. So Aaron and his sons were like the priest priests. They did the priestly duties in the tabernacle. So they were, they were doing all of the things with the animal sacrifice and the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement one time per year. Like they were the priests, but the, the Gershonites were another clan. And, and this is Numbers 3, verses 25 and 26. These two clans were responsible for the care of the tabernacle, including the sacred tent with its cut with its layers of coverings, the curtain at its entrance, the curtains of the courtyard that surrounded the tabernacle, an altar, the curtain at the courtyard entrance, the ropes, and all the equipment related to their use. That was their job. That's the job of the Kirshenites, to do those things. The Kohathites had a different task. This is, let me make sure I'm in my right page here. Verse 31, Numbers 3. These four clans were responsible for the care of the ark, the tabernacle, the lampstand, the altars, the various articles used in the sanctuary, the inner curtain, all the equipment related to their use. And then there were the Merorites. This is verses 36 and 37. These two clans were responsible for the care of the frames supporting the tabernacle, the crossbars, the pillars, the bases, and all the equipment related to their use. I love verse 37. They were also responsible for the posts of the courtyard and all their bases, pegs, and ropes. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever gone camping before? Who's lost a tent peg and you didn't know you lost it until you got there? Numbers chapter 4 goes into a few more details. These are the Kohathites. This is Numbers 4. I'm just going to read a couple things. The duties of the Kohathites at the tabernacle will relate to the most sacred objects. They must spread a blue cloth over the table where the bread of the presence is displayed. Verse 8, they must spread a scarlet cloth over all this, finally covering of fine goatskin leather on top of the scarlet cloth. Verse 9, next they must cover the lampstand with a blue cloth. There's a lot of things going on here that this clan is responsible for. 
The Gershonites, verses 25 and 26, they must carry the curtains of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself with its coverings and outer covering of its fine goatskin leather and the curtain for the tabernacle entrance. They are to carry the curtains for the courtyard walls that surround the tabernacle and the altar, the curtain across the courtyard entrance, the ropes and all the equipment related to their use. It's at this point in our Bible reading plan, most of us check out, right? But God's telling us something. Here's the Merorites. This is verse 31 and 32. Numbers 4. Their only duty at the tabernacle. Oh, how would you like this job? Their only duty at the tabernacle was to carry loads. They will carry the frames of the tabernacle, the crossbars, the posts, and the bases, and also the posts for the courtyard walls with their bases, pegs, and ropes, and all the accessories and everything else related to their use. So what we're doing when we're, when we're reading through this text is we're getting this picture. We have this image that everyone has a role. Everyone has a responsibility. And every role and responsibility matters. Again, if you raised your hand because you've lost a tent peg when you went camping, you know how important that tent peg is. And surely if you went with your children, you said, make sure all the tent pegs are in the bag. Anybody been there? Yeah, dad, they're in the bag. Mom, they're in the bag. Every role, every responsibility matters. There's nothing that's unimportant in this text. In, it's not only in the Old Testament. This is a carryover into the New Testament. And that's, how, that's one way we know that this is for us. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells this, tells this parable of this king who has, who has three servants. And he calls his servants together and he's going to go take a journey. And he entrusts his money to them while he's going to be gone. One of the things that's interesting when we read through the story and we pay attention to the details, um, they don't all get the same amount. So there's this principle going on. Like if we think back to what happened in Numbers, not everyone had the same responsibility. Not everyone had the same role. Well, in this parable that Jesus is saying, is telling Not everyone's going to get the same amount. They're all getting something, but they're not all getting the same amount. First guy gets five bags of silver. The second, two bags. The third, one. The king goes away. The guy with five bags, he he invests his bags of silver. We don't know what it was. It probably wasn't crypto because he wouldn't have made anything off of it. He has five bags of silver and he invests it. And he brings back five bags in return. What I find interesting is I was reading this text, verse 17, Matthew 25, says the servant with two bags of silver also went to work. I find that so, like the first guy invests his money and then the second guy has to do, like he has to do something. He goes to work and he earns two more bags. The one servant with the one bag digs a hole in the ground, buries the bag. The master returns, and and of course, he wants his money back. We can all agree that that's a wise choice. I'm back. I've entrusted you with what I gave you. The first guy comes in with his 10 bags, and he's commended 
for taking what, what the king had given him, for bringing a, a return. The second guy comes in with now his four bags and, and he, is too, he too is commended. And then the third guy comes with his one bag and the king basically asks, what's going on with your one bag? And he says, well, you are a harsh person, so I hid it. I didn't want to take a risk. I didn't want to do anything. And, and the text is, is pretty harsh. This is, one of those, this is one of those really challenging things. Take the money from this servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Now throw this useless servant into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now one of the things we have to remember is this is a parable. This is a story. This is telling us something about the way God's kingdom operates. And one of the ways that God's kingdom operates is, is we've all been given something. We've all been expected to do something with what God has given us. And based on how we utilize what God has entrusted us with, we will either be, we'll either be lauded, we'll be lifted up, or we'll be cast down. And what we have will be taken from us. Sometimes I wonder, as I'm reading through this story, and we're going to talk about Romans 12 next, as I'm reading through this story, like I wonder... The guy who got two bags, did he wish he had five? Did the guy who had one bag wish he had two? See, it can be really easy for us to look at, to look at the things that God has gifted to other people and to want them. To wish that we had that gift. This is, this is Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. Because of the privilege and authority God's given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith is given us. We talked about this back in November. Be honest about ourselves in our evaluation of ourselves. We don't compare ourselves to other people. That's going to be a problem in a few minutes. We don't compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to Jesus. He is our comparison. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part is a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. See, all of us are called. If you are a Christian, you are called. Every single one of us. Every single one of us. We all have a special role and we all have a special function within the church. And we, we fulfill that, like big picture, 60,000 foot view. We fulfill that special purpose, that special function when we, we gather and we give and we serve and we love. And this is why, as we talked about last week, that, that saying, I don't need the church, is just not true. It's a lie. 
you do need the church. See, because without the church, you can't serve in the church. 1 Corinthians 12 a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. See, the church needs you. The church needs you. It's not about whether or not you think you need the church. You do. But the church needs you. The church needs your gifts and talents and skills. It needs your time. It needs your treasure. It needs your efforts and your energy. It needs your knowledge and your wisdom and your experience. Because sometimes as I, as I think about what, what happens on, on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or in small groups, I remember thinking this a lot during 2020. And, and if you were here at Westway, then you heard me say this a few times. Like as we are going through the whole transition to video and all that kind of stuff, I said something like, we have no idea what we're doing because it was all new for us. See, there are a lot of things where, where, we, where we don't necessarily know everything. Like, we don't know what we're doing. What we need is, is people to come alongside of us who have the wisdom and the knowledge and experience to help us as a church, to help us serve our community, to help us learn and grow in our discipleship. And when we went into that, when we went into that phase, that, that, that week in March, where we didn't know what we were doing, we found people who had experience in video, we found people who had experience in sound, and they, and they helped us. That wasn't me. In fact, I was telling them, hey, let's just get a phone and let's Facebook it. And they're like, no, that would be dumb. And I needed that. I needed that. I needed someone who was an expert. And when we fail to live in the way that God's wired us, we demonstrate two things. We demonstrate our self-centeredness and selfishness. And we demonstrate the reality that we don't know who God is and we don't know, understand his purposes for our lives. When we refuse to participate in what God's called us to, our selfishness is revealed and our ignorance of God is revealed. And Paul talks about in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the ways that sometimes we, we respond to God's call on our lives. As I'm reading through uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 12, I really see first false pride. I would call this, um, I would call this the Eeyore response. <sighs> Woe is me. I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to give. And even if I did, I mean, I would, it, would, it would probably fail. No one's going to like what I have to do. If only I had a real gift. Like if only I could play guitar. If only I could teach. If I only had this real gift. Again, this is... This is false pride. And there's this implication when we, when we fall into Eeyore mode, there's this implication that, that what we have to offer doesn't matter. And I would encourage you to read the story where Jesus is at the temple with his disciples 
And he's watching all of the wealthy people come in and, and bringing their money in. And, and this would have been, you should know, this would have been a scene. Okay, this wasn't like a little wooden box in the back. This would have been, this would have been a large container. And, and when they're putting their money in there, like you know what money's going in the, in the container. Wealthy people. And then this widow comes along and she puts in two coins. And what's interesting is Jesus says, she's actually given the most. See, it's false pride that says, I don't have anything to offer. It's false pride. And the second, in addition to false pride, I would just say is regular pride. I don't know how many of you know who Uncle Rico is. Anybody know who Uncle Rico is from the movie Napoleon Dynamite? Uncle Rico says this. If they would just give me the chance, they would let me do this thing. They would all see how strong of a gift I have. And closely associated with that is, I have this gift and you are unnecessary. See, these are, these are false responses to the statement, to Paul's conclusion that everyone has a gift. And when we respond in these two ways, we're demonstrating pride, we're demonstrating arrogance. But there's a third way, and that is the way of service and humility, of obedience. I shared with you on Christmas Sunday that, that I've been reading these books of old sermons and we had this com brief conversation last week in our elders meeting. Um, Dave Robinson was talking about when he can't sleep, he, he, when he was a child and he, and he struggled with not being able to sleep, he said he used to read the dictionary and memorize like whole letters of the dictionary. When I can't sleep, I wake up and read old sermons. And there was this sermon by this, by this preacher named Henry Ward Beecher in the mid to late 1800s, and he wrote, he wrote his sermon called Christian Life, A Growth. He said this, I do not say that there are not some wheels in a watch that are, are more of value than others, but there is not one wheel in a watch that I can take out and leave the watch good for anything. Admit that there is more power in the main spring than in the pointers, but take the pointers off, and what good does the watch do? Now, if this is all Greek to you, there used to be these things called watches that were mechanical. And there'd be little hands, and you could open up the back, and it would be filled with, with all sorts of wheels and gears and, and all of these kinds of things. Admit that there is more power in the mainstring than in the pointers, but take the pointers off, and what good does the watch do? They are passive. They do not do anything except as they are acted upon, but they interpret the result of the operation of the machinery, all the other parts. Though they are in some respects of less value than the mainspring, yet they belong to an organized whole whose efficacy depends on keeping intact every part, no matter how small or apparently unimportant. Here's, here's what this guy's saying. There are no unimportant parts in a watch. 
And if you think there are, remove one. And it will not function. See, in order for us to live this third way, what's needed by us, we, we, we need an anchor. We need an example. We need a demonstration. You can probably guess who that demonstration is. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 15. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old self. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they'll live for Christ, who died and was raised for them. So we have this example in the person of Jesus. An example of generosity. An example of humble service. And the question that that we have to ask when we see this example, how should we then live? What's my response to what I'm observing in Jesus? What's my response as I read through the Gospels? Philippians chapter 4. Chapter 2. Excuse me. Philippians 2 chapter. Chapter 2. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Here's what, here's what Paul is asking. How, how should we then live? With this example of Jesus. Not just observing it. But if we are, if we are Christians. Do you know that as a Christian that you have been a recipient of God's generosity? Do you know that if you're a Christian, you have been a recipient of God's humble service in your life? So what what do we do with this? Verse 2, Philippians 2. Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is is how we live. We see this example in Jesus. We witness to the reality that this example has been done for us. And then we go and we do likewise. We do the exact same things. And if Christ has made a difference in our lives, then then we're going to agree. And one of the ways we talk about that here all the time is unity, not uniformity. We have different gifts. We have different skills. We have different ideas. But we want to be in unity. We'll live, we'll work together with one mind and one purpose. We will act, we will love, we will gather, we will give, we will serve. This is, this, is what, this is our response to the gospel of Jesus. This is how we live. 
And as I said, Jesus is the supreme example of this. This is beginning at verse 5, Philippians 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. One of the things that, that when we read the Bible, one of the things that we want to see is that Jesus's obedient sacrifice was not without cost. It wasn't without cost. Sometimes we, we can get in this mindset as Christians that, that if we're doing what God wants us to, everything is going to work out. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever sometimes experienced that? Isn't that great when that happens? When you do what God wants, wants you to and like everything works out? Like that one time out of a hundred that that happens? How many other times are we obedient and it proves to be more difficult? This is why Jesus tells his disciples to count the cost. See, there's a cost of this obedience. I found this quote earlier this week from a pastor named Douglas Stewart. God's people must not assume that carrying out his commands will increase their own comfort. I think sometimes we have this mindset that obedience to God is going to increase my comfort. It's going to be easy. It's going to be simple. I'm not going to face any challenges. And if that's your mindset, like read, read the New Testament. Read the part in Paul's letters where he talks about being shipwrecked and cast adrift at sea. It wasn't because he was running from God. It wasn't because he was being disobedient to God. Paul was suffering these things because he was being obedient to God. He was being faithful. And then Josh McKay preaches in Alliance now. He recently put, wrote this. He said, God promised deliverance and the Israelites were told to make bricks with straw. Jesus told his disciples to proclaim the kingdom and then promised that they would be flogged in the synagogues. See, generous giving and humble service is not going to be easy. There's going to be a cost. And, and many of you know that's true. You know how hard it is, how difficult it is, how challenging it is. Sometimes that cost is, is serving quietly, is serving humbly, is, is having people not really recognize you. Several weeks ago, um, Buffalo Bills safety, DeMar Hamlin, collapsed on the field. We probably are all inundated with information about that. Maybe you saw that live. Maybe you caught a news story later. And then over the next couple days, there was, this, there was this graphic 
that circulated on social media. And maybe you saw it. It said this. It's a very good possibility that the lowest paid people on the field had the most important job that night. And because of them, someone is alive today. You know, the vast majority of the time, the paramedics and the EMTs, like they're just sitting there in the ambulance, right? Not, I know we have paramedics and EMTs here. I don't mean you. Not doing anything, right? Like that's, that's sometimes what we think. They were the most important people in the field that night. The lowest paid people, the people that, that most of us would probably overlook. Last week, we, we shared with you that statistic, right? That, that half of our body, half of the people who call Westway, who would call Westway home are here um, twice or less a month. And you should know that, that our giving and serving statistics are very similar to that. And we have a lot of people who are faithfully generous givers at Westway Christian Church. And about half of those who consider Westway their home do not contribute financially. Nothing. And every single thing we do is ministry. And every single thing that we do requires money. And we're going to be sharing more statistics about giving here um, at our annual meeting. We're going to have an annual report ready for you next week. I would encourage you, I would encourage you to read that annual report. I would encourage you to, to read the statistics about giving. I would encourage you to ask questions. Encourage you to come to our annual meeting at the end of the month. I would encourage you to evaluate your giving. I would encourage you to get, evaluate your generosity. Serving is about the same. We have great many people who serve faithfully, and in fact, we have a lot of people who overserve. And here's what I mean by overserve: we have people who serve on multiple teams, multiple Sunday morning teams. We have people for whom some of them are not in here because on two or three Sundays a month, because they're serving in different areas, like they're present in the building, but they're not in here. And we're at that same statistic of about 50, 50% of people who don't serve. And like last week, I'm not, I'm not sharing these things to guilt you or shame you. I'm, I'm sharing them with you because, because as a body, like we are called to do something together. We're called to be something as the body of Christ. And we can't, we can't do that if we're not all working together, if we're not all serving together. We're telling you these things because, because I know that you are a loving, generous body. Because over, over, the past, my, over my past almost six years here, and it was long before that, any time we have ever expressed a need to our body about generosity, you guys, you guys have come through. We know how generous you are. We know how generous you are. You can be. And we're just letting you know. This is, we have a need. We have a need in giving. We have a need in serving. And we're going to trust you as people who have been 
as people who have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Actually, don't take this the wrong way. I'm not trusting you. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting in the Jesus who, who gave his life for you that what you will do is you will, you will hear what your body needs and you will respond from an overflow in your heart. You will not be satisfied to not participate in what God has for you. And that's, today we're talking about giving and serving. The easiest way for you to give is just to go to our website, westwaychurch.com slash give, follow the instructions. Very simple to set up. If you're not a consistent, consistently generous giver, I just invite you to do that. And then watch what God does. And generosity is not an amount. Generosity is not a percentage. Generosity is a mindset. And then the second thing, if you are not serving, your body needs you. We're going to put some things up on the screen here. And what you're going to see, like these, these are our biggest needs right now. Building team, embrace grace. Greeting team, kids, tech, van ministry, Wednesdays at Westway. We want to make this so easy for you. And if you just take out your phone, you can text any of these keywords to that number and, and we will reach out to you to connect you to serving. We're going to make this really simple. We're going to bring this to your attention. One of the other old sermons that I read was called The New Commandment of Love. There are people who would do great acts, but because they wait for great opportunities, life passes, and the acts of love are not done at all. Observe, this considerateness of Christ was shown in little things, and such are the parts of human life. Opportunities do, for doing greatly seldom occur. Life is made up of infinitesimals. See, right now, we don't need our body to do some big flashy thing. We need somebody to come and wash dishes on Wednesday nights. That's what we need. We need someone to drive the van. We need someone to call when it's time to, we have to do a building reset. We just need our body to serve. Your body is depending on you. People who don't know Jesus are depending on you. That's how this works. There was another sermon that this F.W. Robertson preached. It was called The Orphanage of Moses, and he was raising funds for the Female Orphan Asylum. I love names like that. We don't call things like that anymore, an asylum for female orphans. This is 1851, and this is the way he ended its, his message, and it's perfect. My beloved Christian brethren, let us not be content with feeling. Give, I pray you, as God has prospered you. I don't want you to look at this list and act out of, 
I really should do this. I don't want you to look at this list and, and act as some kind of way to like put salve on your conscience, knowing that when we call you to ask you to serve, you're not going to. Right? Don't, don't sign up to appease your conscience. Don't be content with feeling. Give and serve as Jesus has demonstrated for us. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would, you would do your Holy Spirit thing. That you would, you would convict us where we need to be convicted. That you would help us to see that you have called us together as a body for a reason and for a purpose. And it is more, more than just being here in this space, although that is important. We are called to that. What we are called to do is to act and live and serve and give in a certain way, in the way that your son Jesus demonstrated for us. And I pray that we would find motivation in that alone. It's in your son's name. Amen.